0: Vodka.
1: Vodka. vodka, vodka, o'clock. Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, and um, this is going to be the first panel that I recorded at New York Comic Con for this year. I attended the show for two days, and I couldn't record all of the panels because uh, one of them in particular, just audio recording, would not have worked well. So, this panel is called Science in Fiction, and it was a fantastic panel, it was a lot of fun. So here's the thing. Don't do what I do. Basically, I get too afraid of failing to try things, and in this case, um, I didn't start recording right away because I just assumed it wouldn't work. I sort of set myself up to fail. I was in the second to the last row, and... I just didn't bother taking out the recorder for a while because I thought, you know what, this is just going to suck. And you actually can hear. Um, It's a little bit quieter, so when I finally took it out and, and hit record, I just went, you know, tested it to play it back. And you actually can hear the speakers pretty well. You might have to jack up your volume a bit during this episode, but it was uh, a really interesting panel because uh, these the books that these authors write are all pretty different, and when you think of science fiction, I think it's such a big, huge genre that, you know, uh, that people just might automatically only think of one thing that's in their head, like they might only think about Star Trek. Um, but it, in this case, there's uh, an author who has like a very post-apocalyptic setting, and then there's Um, another one where it goes back to Victorian England. So it's really interesting to see the diversity in that and also the diversity in the characters that they talk about. And um, so the the panelists for this were A.G. Riddle, whose book, uh, Departure, he talks about. Mindy McGinnis, whose most recent book is A Madness So Discreet. And she goes into talking about lobotomies and all of her research on... Um, actual anatomy and uh, medical procedures and uh, there's a really interesting part of that where (laughs) she spent like a year and a half doing research and it only came to two paragraphs of her final book Jordan Stratford who I've interviewed on this show before and he was the main reason that I actually went to this panel his most recent book is The Case of the Missing Moonstone and that I think is book six or seven of his Wollstonecraft series and Wollstonecraft was unbelievable. I loved it. It's about um, this fictionalized version where uh, a young Ada Lovelace, before she's Ada Lovelace, she's Ada Byron and uh, she becomes best friends with Mary Shelley as little girls. they open up a detective agency and they use all kinds of like science and engineering and logic and stuff to solve crimes. It is phenomenal. There was also Ian McDonald whose uh, recent book is called Luna New Moon. Barry Liga from After the Red, and um, at one point the moderators switched because uh, Peter Klein's had the wrong time, so eventually he gets there and takes over moderating. So um, like I said, the, the recording might be a little bit low, so you might have to boost this up a bit, but I loved this discussion. I will say that it was so popular that the queue to get in was massive. And they had it scheduled in a small room, a very small room. So half of the people had to be turned away. So hopefully that sort of feedback gets back to the New York Comic Con Read Pop organizers. And the next time they try to schedule something with science and fiction together, they understand how popular it is and put them in an appropriate room. Because it was a tiny room, it was horribly hot. Horribly, horribly hot. Like, I don't know how I stayed awake. um Not as bad as FlameCon. FlameCon was off the charts with <laughs> its lack of air conditioning. So, um, you know, enjoy this. And I will, of course, have show notes with the names of all of these speakers so you can go, you know, search for them and find them. And then go back and listen to my past interviews with Jordan Stratford. And let me know what you think. Thanks for listening.
2: Work. It's a, basically it's a, a, a kind of a ratchet work computer and it's capable of doing some fairly simple, um, uh, it's programmable. So this thing could actually work. Um, but mesmerism also uh, appears in the first book. And we know that Ada Byron, later Ada Lovelace, had a lifelong fascination with mesmerism. if actually wrote a, a book about it. And this was considered to be legitimate science at the time. They knew that you could magnetize water, and use that magnetic water for therapeutic purposes. There, and they had science behind that backed it up at the time. Until they had more science that failed to back it up, and we back that theory away. So um, I'm not only introducing scientific ideas, but I'm uh, introducing a kind of a hermeneutic where. Um, science is kind of what you've got to work with at the time and something a better idea will come along and your ideas are disposable and that's okay. In fact that's what makes it cool is the fact that we can (laughs) only ever know so much before we learn something that completely dismantles whatever we were sure of five minutes ago Uh, and it makes, from a character standpoint, it makes the world become an unsteady and scary space but it also makes it a very promising space. You don't always know what's going on and that theme progresses throughout the series and we're talking about book seven now in terms of the map so everything just gets weirder but the same kind of weirdness that you experience if you worked in the lab all the time so
3: one of the things i've been hearing uh from all of you is there's both a i mean this is true in any speculative fiction there's that what if moment that is Like how the story took place whether it's what if you know, there were lobotomies in the 1800s. What if uh, There was this rain in this future that was uh, destroying everything or like a plane crashes in the future or whatever Um, Is that and I'm gonna kind of keep this more open now a little bit looser, but um, is that really like your starting point when you're writing or? Was it more like so? Did you start with a, a scientific principle in mind, or did you start more with like I have this character that I really want to focus on? Um, let's see where I can put them. Let's see what she can do, what he's capable of, etc. So I'm just gonna kind of throw that out there. You can dive in. <laughs>
4: And they've been talking about near future solar solar system science fiction. And Gary Wolf said, "You know, there's lots of books about the new solar system, the new Mars." I'd love to see a new moon story about a new moon base. And I thought, I've always loved moon bases, and I filed that. Some people are just very good at putting those bits of random crap together and making a new thing out of it. Every, everything is a mashup, ultimately.
5: Um, I have a very odd origin story from the seed that started a madness, so to I have an addictive personality, and that doesn't mean that people like to be around me all the time. It means that I tend to do one thing, things that I wonder when I'm alone. And I looked over at my nightstand where I had The Devil in the White City, Arthur Conan Doyle, biography of, an, of a uh, lobotomist, and I was like, oh, if I took all those and I went, <laughs> and I made them one book, that would be awesome. And then I thought, oh, I'm a writer, I can do that. <laughs>
2: this third-party entity that it is something that, that is completely natural and intuitive. And particularly this is something that we, uh, we have a cultural problem, We have a very significant and Persian cultural problem, which is the fact that we have a lot of challenges on this planet, and if we restrict ourselves to using half the brains on it, we're not gonna catch up in time. And uh, particularly in some really exciting fields, we are losing the female brain from participating in a large chunk of this problem solving. And what can I do about that as a a bit of a shit disturber and as a parent and as a parent of a a young girl? And uh, so I was really looking at real world role models, like who are the young women who change the world as young women through the power of their curiosity and uh, their intellect. so in order to do that, I had to use what I call chronobanging, which is actually just an acronym, but chronobanging sounds like it involves a large wrench in more fun. So I had to kind of smash some certain things together in the timeline in order to make this uh, work in, as, a, as a story, as a series, and to support the, the, the character arcs, because they're the things that they're tangling with. I think it's always about uh, finding out what your characters want and not giving it to them. And then after they've suffered for 200 pages, you give them a cookie for being good little characters and putting up who you be, for being a horrible author. And of course, in a series, what you have to do on the first page of the second book is take the cookie away. And you have to make them suffer for another 200 pages. So I'm such a jerk, really. Uh, but the, that process of character engagement in science and by making it uh, feel very ambient, Feel like this is just a kind of a background radiation to their lives is um, uh, is, is super important. And I, I get to play with all kinds of aspects, And uh, uh, but in Book 3 we're into cryptography, so uh, I get to poke all over the place in terms of subject matter, because the Regency period on the threshold of the Victorian era Was such a really really interesting time because science became very very mainstream and uh, extremely popular. This is a thing you people would read scientific journals by the fire in the evening, Um, and particularly for young women, this uh, natural history—go out and draw flowers, but actually draw these flowers in such a way that you can identify them. Uh, Taxonomy was, you know, the, the, the bird watching. Uh, of its day. You would take this thing and you would actually figure out exactly what kind of species is this. And you'd all sit around this in the parlor and you'd discuss what species of daffodil you discovered that day. Um, so this was a real thing and it concretized and it made a very immediate experience, particularly for young women, about how they navigated the world around them by kind of breaking it down into its component parts. It's a really interesting way of looking at the world, it's a really interesting way of solving problems, and it's a really interesting way to write characters.
6: In a very weird way, the science and research um, actually led me to departure. I was working on a new trilogy and I had spent like a year researching this new thing. And I'm So Was cool and I was I spent four months in Europe traveling to some of the places that the book is set in so that was pretty cool. So you know I think it's you know science and we also use you know real things.
7: sounds like fun, I'll just do that is the deadliest thing an author can think. Can it does, because you think this will be so easy and so much fun and then the next thing you know, you're on page 5024 and the book is not over. Um, but uh, for me, you know, th- this was interesting because you know most of my books come about in certain ways, but this is the first time one came, literally came to me, because Peter and, and Rob, who is the, the other co-author, who was uh, Peter's producing partner at the time, they sort of came up with the general framework, and they came to me and said, "Doesn't this sound cool? You know, let let's, let's make a book." And I was like, "Well, guys, this isn't really a story. You've got a couple characters, and you've sort of got this idea for a world, but that's not a story. Maybe maybe, maybe it's a movie, but it's not a story." <laughs> and uh, <Ooh>. and <laughs> just it um, But uh, so I I thought about it a lot. And I, and I was trying to think of ways to make it a little different from sort of other post-apocalyptic stories because I've heard there are some out there. And, <laughs> and what, I, what I hit on was, and again, it's just this serendipity that, that seems to, you know, that, that Ian talked about. You know, I was reading at the time a book called A World Lit Only by Fire by a guy named William Manchester, which is sort of an accounting of how the Dark Ages became the Renaissance. And there's a lot of quibbles with his scholarship, and people always yell at me whenever I bring up this book. It doesn't matter if what he's saying is true or not. What matters is, what it, how it clicked for me. One of the things he talks about is how you know the Dark Ages were so long that, that there was no generational memory of a better time. You know, if you were a poor peasant farmer, your father was a poor peasant farmer, and his father and his father and going all the way back, nobody could remember a time when you weren't a peasant farmer. So there was no point trying to be anything but a peasant farmer because you couldn't even imagine that there was anything else. And the more I thought about that, I thought, oh, this book isn't post-apocalyptic. This is the dark ages, but in the future. And that was that was how the book sort of clicked for me. It's, you know, my editor was like, oh, do they have the Internet? And I'm like, well, no, they have something called the WikiNet, which, think about Wiki for a second, it's like the Internet, but anybody can edit anything on it. So imagine how useful that is.
0: Not at all.
7: <laughs> And, and and so all these things just sort of clicked into place as a result, and it was just, it was really, you know, I, I, it was, I was given pieces from different puzzles that didn't fit together, and then I had to sort of get my chisel, and my file, and my rasp, and make them fit together. And it was it was a really interesting intellectual exercise, and it was nothing I'd ever had to do before in any book. And our moderator is transmogrified. <laughs> <laughs> Alakazam! So this
8: panel does not start at Uh, Hi, I'm Peter Kleins. I'm moderating, but they were
0: pretty much doing it themselves so far. Um, I'm off the boat. Uh,
8: (laughs) And now that we're cut, I actually wanted to talk about science, because you've all mentioned this one or another, uh, scientific research, that all of us know as authors, research is very easily a black hole that you fall down, and, you know, one minute you're just looking to (laughs) see Well,
5: I think it's really easy to over research. I know, in my case, like I said, I I really do. I am pretty confident I can perform a lobotomy. Like I said, it's not. It's
2: it'll be a demonstration later. Even if it went wrong, you (laughs) know, if it went wrong, it wouldn't really matter. So (laughs) I want to see this. I know. See, I really.
5: Uh, which, if you're familiar, is where you punch a hole in the skull so that the brain can swell.
2: I'm game, by the way. Like, we can do this. Oh,
5: we can it mm-hmm. Like, yeah. People do that, there's still. Like, there's now. There's they use drills.
2: There's, YouTube. A, there's a penguin yeah. party after, I think.
8: Oh, okay. You know. yeah.
5: Was, had circulation cut off. So I read surgeon's notes from the Civil War about how to trepin I went to a Revolutionary War reenactment and talked to the guy that was pretending to be a Revolutionary War doctor and asked him to show me how to it. and he did it on a melon and the woman next to me passed out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was videotaping and I thought it was, it was the greatest thing ever. So I did all of this. I learned all about trepid, all about lobotomies. And then I was writing the book, and I got to the scenes where this was going to be the most critical point for me to know this information, and I wrote my scene, and I was like, that's done, and it was two paragraphs, <laughs> it was two paragraphs, and let me tell you, you could use it, don't, but you could use it for a step-by-step on doing a lobotomy, but I had researched, I had put a year and a half of my life into learning so much, and I wrote two paragraphs. I know so much about Bob, so It's amazing. <laughs> I'm very proud. I'm very proud. I have to use it now. I mean, that's the thing. I wrote my two paras, and I'm like, well, now what?
7: All of her books will now have lobotomy. Yeah, they will.
5: I'm actually writing a book titled "Lobotomy."
4: Throw away eighty percent of your research. You, you never use it but unless you do the research. You will not know which eighty percent you don't need to use. <laughs> in the first place, um, it's it's it's, it's um, it is it, it, it is a wonderfully fun black hole you can fall into. Um, especially because writers love prevaricating. Writers will do anything. Search Is it because you, you feel you, you need just a little bit more to have that little extra angle you need the whole thing? And of course you don't. Um, I mean, I, I, I have lovely appendices. I, uh, I discovered that the Hawaiians have a lunar calendar, they have a 31-day calendar with a different name for each day of the month. And that's perfect for a society set on the moon. And there's a big list. The entire Hawaiian calendar at the back of the book is there. into this book um, at all. A previous album the book I wrote called Dervish House, set in Istanbul in the near future. And I discovered a thing called a Mellified Man. What a Mellified Man is, uh, I'll keep this short, it was a good long story. In medieval Arabia, when ancient Islamic gentlemen grew tired of life, they would decide to do something noble Of massive sugar poisoning, then they would bury the body in a stone coffin, top it up with honey. I've, I've got the guys in the palm of my hand. He's <laughs> 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 making all of this <laughs> 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 Top it up with honey and then seal the top of the coffin. Of they put a date on it, and that's the decant date—two or three hundred years in the future, or even. And at that date, you would take the lid off the coffin. What you had inside was a human, basically. Uh, And I did, and people love it. Um, but to show my dedication to my research for that, I actually got a leg of lamb, and I got a very <laughs> large kilner jar, and I have a leg of lamb, it's been in honey for about seven or eight years now, <laughs> so <laughs> I may leave it a little bit longer just to see what it comes out of it. Um, so, so, exactly, it, it's it's like, it's like, it's like the trapanning in the water. There are, there, are some, there are bits you come across that you love so much you would do anything to
2: I kind of ran into um, the basics where I've got uh, a character who's the world's first computer programmer. So how do you actually start from uh, a mechanical phenomena of something that going tick, or in case of uh, a zero in a binary line or something not going tick? And how can you take something as abstract as an event, or the weather, or mood? physical evidence gather a scene or an observation and translate that from its very initial instance into a tick or a non-tick. And what does that look like? And so I ended up having uh, you know, creating all these different models for what is the, what would be the most primitive computer that you could actually build. And I created a system where I have spindles with holes in them and you can kind of fill the hole with something. And then it turns and it ratchets another. It sets up a counter and the thing is it or not, but then all you're really doing is looking at something that can count more than one thing at a time, and then you have to extrapolate patterns from that. Uh, and the software for extrapolating that patterns doesn't actually exist for well past uh, even when we get well into a, a, a electronic computing, and well past that. So you know, we could count data for a long time before we actually knew what the hell we were looking at. And so then to scale that back into something that can, can click with the, the mind of uh, a very bright and inquisitive 11-year-old girl, um, it was definitely pushing the bounds. So at some point, I just have to kind of back off and say, computer science exists, just bear with me. It's a thing. It, re- it really is a thing, and it's possible. And so it does become, there's a degree of, of macguffin that I think you even have to introduce in fiction. Otherwise, it's like, okay, kids, well, let's sit around the campfire. We're all going to do CompSci 101. <laughs> and six months later, they all walk around and they're like, they're, they're they're applying for jobs at Microsoft, but they haven't finished your novel yet. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you're not really doing the reader any favors at that point. So sometimes you just have to kind of go and say, trust me. So this sounds sounds very convincing at the time. Such a, a great point. When do when do all
8: of you find that point where okay, these things we need to have hard science? We need to have numbers, we need to math, we need things we can back up. And then the soft science stuff where it's like just trust me this works. We're we're gonna reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll solve everything.
7: <laughs> Since neutrons are neutral by definition, I don't know how you can reverse the polarity. <laughs> the f- but anyway <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean it's I technically. It's very technical. (laughs) Insert babble here. (laughs) Um, I've always felt like you sort of, it's sort of like tricking children into getting into your van. Um, Uh, You you want to give them enough candy to get them closer, and then once they're in, that's when you slam the door, and then you don't have to worry about the candy anymore. And... um, (laughs) But I mean, that that sort of you know you you want to treat the reader that way. You You know, I wrote serial killer books. (laughs) Um, You really want to? You really want to? uh, You you want to? You're you're seducing the reader. You're telling the reader, "Look at this," and the reader goes, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." And you're telling the reader, "Look at this," and they go, "That makes sense." Look at this, that makes sense. And you've backed all that stuff up. And then you go, now look at this, and they go, "Well, that, yeah, okay. All those other things made sense, so I guess this makes sense too." <laughs> and it's when when do you, it, it's how you make that transition, how you make that transition over. Um, and and I mean, honestly, people hate when I say this, but it really becomes—it's one of those things where when you're writing, it becomes a gut feeling. I think I don't think that there's a, a matrix or a schedule or or a graph or anything like that that shows you, okay, after four paragraphs of, of actual scientific information, the reader is mentally prepared you know for, for this or is primed for this, you just go with your gut. And for me, it usually becomes when I'm tired of going from my notes to the keyboard. you know It's like, okay, I'm tired of looking this shit up, I'm just gonna go with it now and hopefully it'll work.
6: Yeah, I think that, yeah, the first draft is always kind of instincts and there is this kind of propensity to put all the research in there because you did the work and all the, and the research, fruit. and yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know what I'm talking. About.
2: Science that can make so much sense that it actually removes mystery from the equation and it moves um, that it, it just shatters that suspension of disbelief. I call it the mid problem.
4: Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, I wouldn't use the analogy quite of enticing children to my <laughs> 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 What are you hiding? <laughs> of using that metaphor, an innocent man would not be afraid of it. <laughs> My way of thinking of it is more like um, passing a foreign coin off in your change. Um. <laughs> there you go. Elegant, concise, and accurate. <laughs> and, um, in that, for it, to, you know, for it to go into the machine, <coughs> it has to be of a similar size to a true coin. It has to be of a similar weight to a true coin, but it doesn't have to be a true coin. In other words, it has to be science. What was real science to me to not kind of stick up in so, so choose your analogies. I and mean, pedophile, you know, small change
7: speech. <laughs>
4: <laughs> choose um, why.
7: I didn't say anything about pedophilia. I don't know what the kids are doing. Yeah. Hey, you have no idea.
0: Transportation
3: I'm interested. Christmas I'm Christmas right? interested
7: that that's right where you went. That's very interesting. <laughs> He's a
0: school bus driver. It's
7: my. Oh. <laughs>
5: Ended up way out west, and I was dealing with people who do not have enough water to drink. And everyone is always saying that your human body is 80% water. And I get very tired of cannibalism being touted as like this is the worst thing you can do, eating people is really bad. And you know, when the first time I came across it, is but you know, it's like the first time I came across cannibalism when I was like 12, and I don't mean like I tried it, I (laughs) I mean like I read it, saw whatever, and I was. Like wow, that's terrible. And I'm past, you know, past, the shock factor's gone. I'm like, yes, we understand cannibals. And I was tired of that, so I'm like, okay. So what if you're not eating people, but you're drinking them? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm like, how do you get? Okay, so there's 80 percent of your body is water. How? How do we get that out? And so I did some googling, <laughs> and I had. A, so no one should ever. Look, I really was paranoid. I'm like, no one should ever look at the history on my computer, because they're going to be like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, usually you do a Google search, and you have four or five pages to scroll through. You have to sort out your information. I Googled, how do you get water out of the human body? It's like, Google is like, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. Okay, so you, it's in there. You can get it out. I'm going to play with that. So I have some, a friend that is a surgeon, and I came up with a method. And I said, Lydia, would this work? She emailed me back and she said, um, yeah, technically that would work. And I was like, awesome. Thanks, man. And
0: so people,
5: whenever when I do things, people that have read the second book, they say, Mindy, I have to ask you, where did you come up with this thing in the book? With you know, when that happens. And I said, Oh, I made that up. And I came out of my head. And they're like, Oh. <laughs> it's way worse it's like worse than when you start talking about bands yeah they're very they're scared it's weird so but would it actually work I don't know um I, I hope I'm never in a situation where I have to find out but yeah I've supposedly according to you know the technicals yes it would
2: we could do that after the lobotomy yeah I've got all <laughs> the, I have the patients list. are very cooperative at that point yeah I have like a check mark like a list
5: with check mark boxes so I mean
2: you look under your seats, you'll find a number. <laughs>
8: <laughs> Let me, um, we're probably going to got a little time left to take questions. i got one, one more question for you to flip it around. No one has to name anything, but why do you think it is, everyone here has a really great science-based book, Set in the past and the future. Um, you get other books like uh, the one that pops to mind is The Martian by Anywhere, which, I mean, the guy has six pages on how to Some writers get away with this, that we can have all our scientific stuff, and other writers have three paragraphs of exposition and they lose you, right there. What do you, what do you think is the mis- or a mistake, being
7: made? I think in the case of The Martian, it comes down to voice. I really do. I mean, Mark Watley's voice, right, I mean, the opening line of that book, I'm pretty much fucked. Right, right from the opening line of that book, he's got you with an interesting character and a, and a great voice. And so yeah, when he's you know, describing the quite dry and boring process of growing potatoes in Martian soil, which I mean dry and boring in terms of the actual steps taken, not the fact that, holy crap, this guy just grew potatoes on Mars, um, when he's doing that, you're, you're along for the ride because it's Mark Watley, and Mark Watley's fun, and he's thinking about Aquaman, and, you know, and, and it's interesting, and I, think, I, I really think that's what it comes down to for the most part.
5: And it's about America's first serial, serial killer, but it's also about the Chicago World's Fair, and there's a huge amount of that book dedicated to the different plants that were grown for the Chicago World's Fair, how they built the Ferris, how they built the ferris wheel. <laughs> uh, it's talking about how it's really hard to build tall buildings in Chicago because of the silt, and, and you're just like, oh, and you, you learn a lot, and you're fascinated, and you go and you tell people, you're like, I just read this great book about silt, and they're just like... Oh Devil in the White City is amazing, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly.
4: It's slightly different in writing uh, because every detail has to be a telling detail, otherwise, it's, it's like those terrible boring about the size of pistols and all that particular make, which is for detail for detail's sake. I think in the kind of stuff we do, every detail has to earn its place and tell you either something about the character it's related to, the story as it unfolds, or the world of which those characters are, are related. Um, in this one, uh, people 3D print their clothes. You, you finish the clothes, you throw them in the hopper, deprints them, you print something out of it. If you can print clothes there, you can print any any yeah, style you want. So I got thinking. Well, in most science fiction, and most sci- most sci-fi, the clothes suck. They're really sucky. thought, <laughs> so, well, if you can print your own clothes, why not have it from one the, of the more elegant decades, the 1950s? So the women's dresses are all. So all the women look like uh, <laughs> you know, look like Grace Kelly in this, but the men have. Tells you something about the way, you know, what the characters' values are, you know, their, their personal style and, what we, and how the world works, all in one kind of fairly small, simple detail, 1950s fashion. So that detail earns its place, tells you about the world, tells you about the characters. And,
8: and it's also a great detail because y- you're just building up a technology we all know. Yep. We understand.
0: I up, in
2: your I would throw in, uh, Chekhov has this wonderful bit but that if there's a, a, a gun in the first scene, the gun has to go off before the end of the play. <laughs> if there's a phaser in the first scene... <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, when I crafted this book, I actually crafted this, this series, and so I have all these guns lying around I have that, that, that don't go off in the first book. You know, everybody walks past this umbrella stand or whatever it is, and, and uh, then you get these little notes from editing. It's like nothing happens, it's on the umbrella stand. You mention it three times, and just, just wait. <laughs> I have a plan for it. And so you go know, to the end of the second book or the end of the third book meeting, and it's like, there, look, can we get rid of that umbrella stand? You mentioned it it's like, just wait. So I don't write back. I just write forward. And so it's like, okay, I just need a bigger idea to encompass the thing. If I go down a, some kind of rabbit hole, um, I'll find a rabbit at the end of it. You know, that, that's it. If you paint yourself into a corner, then you just need a sledgehammer or some kind of, you know, dynamite ex machina. You, that's, um, that's that's part of it. I I'm not a fan of of unwriting or going back. It's just. Just grab them and go.
0: that you've got a story that's made it to the ninth chapter out of 2015, and you a new element, it changes something back and just winds back and you writing back. Or you can't take a sledgehammer or something
2: and you add something and back Didn't say it had to be coherent. <laughs> <laughs> also, you know, that's that's why there are editors. <laughs> Honestly, you you can sometimes you just like okay, well i have just balls out and I'm gonna go down off this crazy direction, and you know sometimes you can get away with it. You can actually surprise yourself by the time you get to chapter fifteen, you go, this actually all kind of lined up really well. It's like I planned it all out, and your editor says, no, that didn't. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and you know the global finder place, and thirty seconds later the problem is solved. So. Um, it, that's not so much a part of the writing process as rewriting. I think, you know, there's writing as rewriting, of course, we all know this, but um, I, yeah, I don't, don't I, I would, it, as advice, as much as any writer can ever give another writer advice, because you know, you're the one who has to live with a book in your head. Um, just go forward. Don't go backwards, just go forward. Okay, in the back. Thank you. Uh,
6: if you need to budge the science of fudge the science, how do you combine that with a really hard, really well-researched science? Do you want it to be as smooth as possible, or do you ever feel, you know, apologetic for having to put in a few fibs
0: to make the story work?
8: I, I normally, I'm lying through the whole book. I mean, none of this <laughs> ever happened personally, so if I have to lie mo- more about one thing, it doesn't really change it for me.
4: Um Honestly, if I've done it right, you should be able to spot the light. over thin ice you know, if, if you know there's thin ice under your plot or your science if you go fast enough you'll
1: get over it okay? <laughs> so kind of
4: yeah, take it at speed and, 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 ju- and just a bit of chutzpah about it really. really
5: cool. well and at the end of the day we are, we, obviously we want to put as much research as possible, we are writing fiction, we are writing stories about things that never happened to people that don't exist, so if we have to lie a little bit, I mean yes definitely, you just go for it and and just push past
7: that. And recognize that there's always going to be at least one reader who knows more about the topic than you and is very happy to tell you what a screw up you are. (laughs) And realize, seriously, it doesn't matter. That book's just not for that person. Like, you know, we all have areas that we know very well. And if you read a novel, set in that area, in that milieu, and you read it, and you found something that just was completely false and just didn't work for you and pulled you out of the book and killed the book for you, that book's just not for you, you know? We all have the right to read books that we enjoy. We don't have the right to have every book be one that we enjoy. So put down the book and go read something that's not going to make you pull your hair out. Um, You're going to get readers like that, and oh well. There's nothing you can do about it unless you're just going to write a very dry
4: recitation of fact. Even then, somebody will complain about it. I've only had one complaint uh, about about factual errors in my book. It was an old fantasy book a years ago in the 1990s, and it was um, the, and it was a typewritten letter, and it was to do with tractors.
0: <laughs> whole,
4: whole thing. And I mentioned a particular round of Massey Ferguson tractor in the year 1931. I got I think you'll find that this version of the Massey Ferguson was not available until 1933.
7: <laughs> <laughs> Only one. Clearly, your book take, takes place in an alternate universe where that tractor was available two years earlier. <laughs> so
2: how, how much candy do you have to offer the kids to get into your tractor? <laughs> Before you lobotomize them.
5: <laughs> in the back, over there. Um, I had a question about resources, so like what sources do you like to use or have found anything from like Google to Civil War reenactments you were saying, Mm -hmm. or how do you find these or what things, sources do you find interesting or fun to use? Just about anything, I mean, everyone is a resource for something, and pretty much you have never going to just be like, oh, Wikipedia's sad, so it's cool. <laughs> so, you know, I double-check everything, and I, I have to have things definitely be as accurate as possible, but there are resources everywhere. Um, I can't... Just having a conversation with someone can spring an entire novel. Everything is a resource, I, I feel.
2: I write for 11-year-old girls. They all have superpowers. And if you sit down and you ask 20 random questions, from an 11-year-old girl. I guarantee she'll blow your minds off. So far, there will be skull fragments on the ceiling. They are just amazing little humans. And they look at the world in this incredible way that will just completely upset any kind of uh, operating set you enter the conversation with. For this book, just one to Google Moon. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we have time for one last
0: question. Is it a quick You
7: might be a short story writer or a novella writer or a screenplay writer. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Uh, you know, it's not just how do I make it longer. It's, it, you know, you said, what if you have a lot of important scenes? Every scene should be important. If you don't break up the book and go, well, today I'm going to write an important scene, tomorrow I'll write some of the ones that really don't matter. They all matter. And if you have enough of them to fill 40 pages, your story is 40 pages long. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't beat yourself up. Don't go. But it's supposed to be 300. No, it's supposed to be exactly as long as it's supposed to be. It's like my high school Spanish teacher used to say when we would say, How long do our essays have to be? She would say, Make it like a skirt, long enough to cover the topic, but short enough to be interesting.
1: Hey everyone, it's Amber. I hope that you enjoyed listening to the Science in Fiction panel from New York Comic Con 2015. And don't forget that you can sponsor the show on the website by going to patreon.com slash amberunmasked. And you can sponsor the show for as little as a dollar per week. And it's really, really helpful for me if you do that. So thanks for listening and thanks for sponsoring the show. And it makes sure that I get to places like New York Comic Con in the future.